Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. There's one thing that Republicans and Democrats in Pennsylvania agree on. The country's healthcare system is broken. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to view the latest issue of Politico magazine's series, The Deciders. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on Nerdcast, an all-election edition, we take one last look at the race for control of Congress and the governor's races that we have our eyes on before next week's election. And stay tuned for the end of the show from a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. A note, as always, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, November 1st, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We have here in the studio senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hi, Scott. Hi, Charlie. We have Chris Catalago from the Politico White House team. Hi, Chris. Hi, great to be back. And here to help us with the latest on congressional races before she heads back out on the trail for one last whirlwind journey across the House battleground Just landscape. basically up and down I-95. Elena Schneider. <laughs> Welcome, Elena. All right, let's jump right in. Our first data point, eight. Democrats have an eight-point lead on the generic ballot. That's the question, are you more likely to vote for a Republican or a Democrat for Congress? And that's according to the latest Politico Morning Consult poll. That's about in line with the polling average nationally. Uh, 538 has it at about nine points right now, eight, nine points. That's more or less where everything is. So, Elena, let's start with how the House map has changed or not since you were last on the show a couple weeks back. What seats have come into play? What ones have been chalked up as a done deal? And what's how, you know, synthesize it all for us. How does it all add up? That's a very narrow and specific question, (laughs) so I expect you to answer in 10 seconds or less. Just wrap it up in a bow. So the House in the last month has seen a lot of volatility, and that's really what a lot of people expected. I mean, look, uh, Trump is in the White House, and that's um, what we've seen over the last two years, and it didn't change in October. There was uh, a sense in September that things looked really good for Democrats across the board. And by their spending advantage and by force of personality from some of these candidates, everyone from Richard Ojeda in um, in in. West Virginia to um, to candidates to just basically candidates across the country really done a phenomenal job of sort of putting these Republican incumbents on defense. Then we had the Kavanaugh hearings, followed by a number of sort of red meat issues that Trump has really been beating the drum on. That's really driven a lot of people back to their partisan corners. And we saw a real um, jump in enthusiasm amongst Republicans that really tightened races across the board. Some races, right? Exactly. Some races across the board. So I'm thinking somebody like Iowa, um, Iowa's first district where Rod Blum was sort of written off for dead over the summer. And then all of a sudden we saw CLF jump back in with a million dollar buy there. Sorts of uh, Trump country places who, um, as soon as they saw the Kavanaugh hearings and Trump getting on the trail again, suddenly remembered, oh, yeah, I really liked this Trump guy. And we saw those races tighten. In contrast, we saw a whole bunch of suburban races come on board. And in the last two weeks saw the NRCC, the Republican uh, 
campaign committee, along with CLF, the outside super PAC, rush into a number of districts all across the country, everywhere from uh, central Florida, outside of Tampa, to races in uh, Washington, where they suddenly needed to put in real money to shore up those candidates. And these are real reach districts um, that hold sort of a mix of suburban uh, rural areas. And I think that they are really concerned about those because those suburban voters do not like what they're seeing out of the president right now. And so basically what you saw is, you know, after Kavanaugh hearings and Trump really diving into the midterms, you saw Republican numbers improve in, in some places, especially where Trump did well. And and Republicans were really banging the drum about this, right? They were very excited about this. But at the right. same time, behind the scenes almost, there were yet more of these suburban districts that Democrats have been chasing already that that slid into dangerous territory. I mean, we're even talking about Georgia 6 again, Georgia 6 and one of the neighboring districts, Georgia 7, which I know is giving you PTSD from the 2017 special election. But like, <laughs> this is these are highly educated suburbs, right? right? This is what we've been banging the drum about for, for a year and a half now. And it's just like it's all coming back. Right. Uh, e- even as some of these Trump districts kind of kind of slid slid maybe back toward the Republican column. And I think, too, another element to the volatility is just watching what's happened in the last week between uh, the uh, bombs that were sent through the mail to prominent Democratic politicians, along with the um, horrific massacre in, in Pittsburgh. Between those two major events, I've talked to a lot of Republicans privately who uh, saw for all the gains that they have made, may have made in the last couple of weeks in October, really saw a backslide and saw a momentum shift in these final days. And that means a lot as they're heading into the final stretch here. And this is not sort of what they wanted to talk about uh, in the in their closing messaging. And Chris, obviously, that, that's put kind of the president at odds with strategists in his party yet again. Yeah, what you're seeing, and I think the reason people are so nervous about this is it's basically like, you know, Donald Trump's rhetoric like in, in 3D over the last uh, week or so. And it's like, hey, you know, this these are the things you talk about. This is These are the things that you... Uh, you know, you, you put out there in terms of uh, of spreading fear and, and, and sort of this, this violent language and, and now it's coming back to bite you. What we do see in the last couple of days is like no matter what, he's going to try to change the subject. He's basically expressed sort of exasperation with the media for um, the amount of coverage that these horrific events have received, almost almost basically saying like we need to move on. Um, and, you know, people don't want to move on. He's put out this web ad that is sort of uh, you know, the new version of uh, of Willie Horton with this cop killer from California. And so, you know, no matter what he um, no matter what his sort of impact is on these districts, he's going to like he's going to try to have the, the, the conversations been this sort of spinning wheel turned back to subjects he thinks are favorable. It almost seems, Chris, and I'm curious what you what your view from you know reporting inside the White House is that that um, he he's essentially jettisoning the House. Uh, in order to maybe try and, and rev up Republicans to to gain a few more of these red state Senate seats that they're chasing. Yeah, of the 30 events he's done since Labor Day, uh, two-thirds have been basically in Senate and gubernatorial states. And I think even of those like 10 or so that um, you know he can sort of credibly, somewhat credibly claim are for House races – you know, some of them are pretty marginal House districts that he's visiting, including some in in Pennsylvania and some other states. And so I think certainly like all his focus and all of the pre-November 6th spin is going to be on how much he's helped in these uh, red Senate states. And I think basically they're going to go to what Donald Trump always does, which is when something is not favorable to him, he's just going to basically ignore it or blame someone else. Well, Charlie, can you can you walk us briefly through the the state of play in the Senate at this point? Because and, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, but uh, it, there's almost been 
yeah, there's this just totally divergent relationship between the the House landscape and the Senate landscape this year. And things at this point do look like Republicans are poised to to maybe pick up uh, some ground in the in the Senate. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that you could have a year where uh, we, we might end up seeing a blue wave where the House might go, yet the Senate might not. Because over time, over history, what we know is that when the House flips, the Senate almost always goes with it. Yet the, it's not true the other way around. So this year might be this rare instance where the House flips, but the Senate doesn't. You know, as, as everybody here knows, that's largely a function of the, of the map and the vagaries of the map this year of a an absolutely brutal map for Democrats where, you know, in order to win back the majority or even hold their majority, they have to run a gauntlet of, you know, the most, the whitest, most rural, most pro-gun, most pro-life, most pro-Trump states in order just to hold their position, you know, and I think uh, in the end, even if Republicans end up holding their majority or even boosting it by one or two, which it kind of looks like right now, at least in, in my eyes, that's still actually not a terrible year for Democrats, given what they were faced with at the beginning of this election cycle. And right now, I think we're starting to see some things revert to the mean. We're, be, we're beginning to see you know, states that maybe look like they might come online for Republicans at one point in the election cycle, like maybe Tennessee. Remember all the hope around Phil Bredesen? Well, that seems to be getting away from them. I mean, again, the, you know, I'm, I'm not saying... I'm not trying to be determinative here. Uh, I'm not saying these races are over, but Some, someone's hearing the footsteps of a midterm election that's going to prove every prediction right or wrong, uh, it, right, right behind him right now. I think. Right. No, I mean, I mean, uh, I think it's. I, I want to be fair to these candidates. Like, I don't think that's a done deal, but uh, I don't want to say it's a done deal. But now we're beginning to see her. We're beginning to see some polling where she breaks it open. Texas is beginning to look, you know, harder and harder. Uh, for Beto O'Rourke to pull off the uh, the epic upset. And uh, so, you know, and there are some races that I think people had given up some Republican candidates for dead and they've come back and, you know, are in the hunt like Dean Heller in Nevada. So I think when you add it all up to me, I think ultimately uh, it could be an election where Republicans maybe even add a seat uh, or two to mm-hmm. their uh, majority. It's just a, it's a very difficult path, right, for for Democrats to take the Senate. They have to essentially win every toss-up race, that's left, and then they would they would have to win one of Texas, Tennessee, or North Dakota. All of them difficult for various reasons. Now you, you could construct a scenario, right? If you know a, a really good scenario for Democrats in your mind, where there's a polling error that leads to them winning one of those, right? North Dakota is an incredibly difficult state to poll, and they they don't have like the same voter registration system that other places have. O'Rourke has, which which makes it tough to figure out who who might vote. O'Rourke has this, you know, unique campaign, right? The, that's that's spurred a lot of interest, and maybe that's generating conditions for a polling error. But but at this point, that's what Democrats would need in order to gain seats to to, to retake yeah. the. I Senate. mean, they would need a real exercise in needle threading. I mean, imagine yeah. like a best case scenario for Dems. You know, maybe you pick up the open Arizona seat. Maybe you pick up the Dean Heller seat and knock him off. And then maybe you hold Florida and Indiana and Missouri and, and Montana. Uh, and then you pick off one of the, you know, the Tennessee or the Texas class. I mean, it's possible. It's not totally implausible. It just seems, you know, it's, it's tough. It, it'd be tough to pull off. Meanwhile, as we as we discuss how narrow the path is in the Senate, I mean, Elena, we've got election night coming up, right? We're we're preparing to watch this unfold, the battle for the House on Tuesday night, and I'm just thinking as we kind of step through, you know, what states are closing at which times and things like that. There's so many paths for for Democrats to step through in order to try and get this 23 seat flip that they need to retake the House. Absolutely. And I think that that's because of the breadth 
of this battlefield. When you have so many races that are competitive, when you have so many candidates who are spending, even in these marginal races, look, I mean, MJ Hagar down in Texas isn't one that people are expecting her to flip, but forcing somebody like John Carter, uh, a congressman down there to get some help, bring, you know, bring some resources in there. It's just, it just thins out the, the amount of money that can go around on the Republican side on defense. And that's part of what makes all of this um, fascinating to see how they're going to cobble it together, because I don't think that there is a ton of clarity as to there hasn't been uh, a sort of one one path that they've tried to take through this. They've 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 done sort of the you know both and approach to to all of this, and I think that that uh, on their part was probably a smart one and maybe the only choice that they had after 2016, and also because simply yeah there were just so many opportunities. And I remember talking to Democrats at the beginning of the cycle. And then saying, repeating over and over again, they're going to have to, the DTRIP is going to have to make some really tough resource decisions and cut people off who aren't going to make these things competitive because there won't be enough money. We haven't seen that materialize at all. They've been able to, because of the intense amount of money that's come in from outside groups, from Tom Steyer, from from Mike Bloomberg, from uh, small dollar donors across the country, that has sort of eliminated that need. There hasn't been sort of a resource problem, and therefore it, it allows for this just enormous battlefield to continue to play out for them. All right. Well, we've got a f- only a few days left, as we said, until election night. Let's let's close out uh, th- this segment here. What's the one thing that each of you are going to be looking for as the results start to come in on, on Tuesday? Chris, what, what are you going to have your eye on? So in the last uh, week or so, we were told um, that the big focus uh, from the White House, from the Trump campaign, is sort of this closing message that that in some of these districts doesn't include Trump. He put out this this. Uh, this last ad that had uh, that doesn't feature him at all, and I think the other the other figure that the White House is telling us to look at is the right track, wrong track figure, and that doesn't necessarily revolve around Trump, and 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 that number's kind of gone up over the summer, and they feel like that will help minimize any sort of blue wave, and we'll see if that pans out. It's also a good way of kind of pulling him back from events if things do go really poorly for mm-hmm. them on totally uh, on on Tuesday night. Charlie, what are you looking out for on Tuesday? Um, I guess if I had – I have a whole uh, list of things. I guess if I had to pull them out, I would say one of which uh, is not candidate-oriented. I'm going to be interested in how the suburbs perform and not all the suburbs but uh, actually the the southern and the Sunbelt suburbs. I want to know how the Atlanta suburbs perform and I want to know how the Dallas suburbs perform because uh, if they are leaving the Republican Party and deserting Republican candidates, then the route is on not just in this election cycle uh, but over the election cycles to come because Republicans are going to have to cobble together a whole new coalition if this is true. Uh, And it would be an uh, enormous uh, slap in the face to Donald Trump. The second thing that I'm interested in, if I had to pick one candidate, maybe, I'm really interested in Joe Manchin in West Virginia. I want to know if, like, I've always thought of him as a really talented retail candidate. And I want to know if he can, in the most Trump state, most pro-Trump state in the nation, probably, place that just loves Trump like no other, I want to know if he can withstand uh, the hurricane there. I mean, he, he's run a pretty good campaign so far, and he's got lucky enough that he's got a uh, really lame candidate running against him. Uh, a guy who, I, you know, <laughs> it reminds me of like, you know, uh, somebody I grew up with who lives in New Jersey now, you know, like he's a, he is a guy who exudes <laughs> New Jersey, you know, that he's, he's, running not, in West Virginia. he's running in West Virginia. I mean, it's one of those things where uh, it's so obvious, I think, to a lot of uh, voters in West Virginia that you know, that the uh, connections there are a little bit tenuous. Um, but either way, I'll be interested to see how Manchin does. 
Elena? I'm going to be watching whether or not these ancestrally Democratic parts of the country come back to the Democratic Party. The Obama-Trump district. Exactly. So I'm looking in particular at um, Rod Blum in Iowa, Maine 2 with Bruce Poliquin. I think those are going to just be fascinating to see if those migrate back in the other direction or if they don't, or if they've really, in the same way that Charlie was saying, if the Dallas suburbs and Atlanta suburbs trend toward Democrats, is are, are those sort of ancestrally Democratic areas now in, in the Trump coalition to stay? Yeah, I mean, I think you you guys have really hit on like the two the 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 two main factors in this election, right? Like where are are just how Trump has has affected things? Has he kind of snapped Democrats into contention in these suburbs? Has he snapped them out of contention, or or is it all in play? I think there are some people who think who think both. All right, just a few more days until we find out. Elena, thank you so much for spending a little time here in the studio before then and before you go back on the road one last time. Thank you so much. And uh, Charlie, thank you for coming in as always. Thank you, Scott. All right, Chris is going to be sticking around with us for the rest of the show, which is coming up after this quick message from a sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. The country's healthcare system is broken and getting worse, according to voters older than 50 in Pennsylvania. The latest issue of Politico magazine series, The Deciders, explores the perspective of voters over 50 in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and their shared belief that our country's healthcare system isn't working for them or their families. View the latest Politico AARP poll results and read the latest issue of The Deciders at politico.com slash the deciders. On to our next data point, which is 36. There are 36 governor's races happening this year. Uh, out of the 50 states, and there are potentially some big surprises in store. We will unpack them now with Chris and our next guest, Daniel Strauss, political reporter with his eye on governor's races. Daniel, thank you so much for being in here. Thanks for having me again. All right. So let's talk about some of the marquee races that you've had your eye on, and then we'll jump into some of the stranger, more surprising stories. But you know, if we're starting with marquee races, you got to start in Florida, yep. biggest swing state in the country biggest governor's race in the country. And it's partially because of the candidates. On the one side, we have Andrew Gillum, who was sort of the Bernie Sanders grassroots candidate uh, who came and won the nomination uh, in a surprise moment. On the Democratic side. On the Democratic side. And on the Republican side, there's Ron DeSantis, who was a Trump supporter, I think, longer than most of the big Trump surrogates in Congress. Oh, yeah. OG Trump supporter. Yeah. I remember, actually, when, when DeSantis ran for Congress in 2012, he came to Washington to, to meet some reporters. And that day, in particular, he was showing off on his broken screened iPhone that Donald Trump, then private citizen Donald Trump, had tweeted something nice about him and was apparently going to donate to his campaign. And this was in 2012, right? And so like this, is, there's some sort of relationship there that goes back long before his gubernatorial run. Right. And as far as all indicators suggest is that uh, Republicans in Florida like that. That's why they elected him. He was not the the sure uh, candidate to win the nomination. He had uh, uh, Adam Puck, uh, Putnam, the agriculture commissioner, uh, to fend off in his bid. So these two forces, these these proxies between President Trump and if you sort of squint and tilt your head in the right way and close your eyes, they see sort of a Democrats see sort of an Obama-like figure in Andrew Gillum. Well, it's, it's really the ids of both parties right. going up against you, right? You've got the Trump endorsed DeSantis and, and Chris, Trump has sunk a lot of 
energy into DeSantis' campaign uh, going back before the primary, right? And then, and then in yeah, in Gillum, you've got this kind of future-focused, uh, young African-American candidate uh, that, that has Democrats all excited. Yeah. Two of the last uh, rallies that uh, Donald Trump is doing over the last week are in Florida. Obviously, that's for Rick Scott, but, it, but in a lot of ways, it's for DeSantis. And I think people underestimate how important some of these big swing states are going to be in having an ally in the governor's mansion at the time. So I think it's sort of a, it's a combination of, you know, Donald Trump has lended his name. He's lended his support. He's really him and uh, I guess him and a combo of like Fox News have helped uh, pull DeSantis up. And, and now- uh, it's you know, close, though. I mean, well, it, Gillum is, has led in most polls, right? right. Not all, but by most. single digits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but this is this is a much more competitive race than I think a lot of Democrats had expected at the beginning of the cycle in their favor. Mm-hmm. What what else? What else are the big ones that you're keeping an eye on? Here? I, mean, I mean, if we're talking about Gillum and the, the historic nature of his candidacy, we got to talk about Georgia too, right? right? With Stacey Abrams. This uh, uh, Democrat that Emily's list and a lot of party leaders had been grooming and hoping would run for governor someday against another big uh, uh, Trump supporter who came out from behind, uh, Brian Kemp. And what I love about this race is that it is uh, uh, an argument for two views on voting rights. Kemp is... Uh, has prided himself as Secretary of State as being one of the most hardline um, secretaries of state on voting rights and pushing voter ID laws. And on the other side is um, uh, Abrams, who for years before running for governor spent a lot of time working to expand uh, the number of registered voters, especially among minorities in Georgia. And these two are finally coming for, to a head. Uh, they, they fought in court for years. They and fought now in court, right. She, Abrams um, uh, was the founder of a, a group called the New Georgia Project, which was her vessel for trying to expand uh, the electorate in Georgia. And that group clashed with Kemp multiple times. Um, so it, it's funny. The, these two states in the uh, southeast have been one of the biggest battlegrounds for gubernatorial races this cycle. But I also want to point to Scott Walker's reelection in Wisconsin. Uh, Walker has been a, a, a national figure in the Republican Party for years, very briefly ran for president. Very and, briefly. And, well, and at the beginning, he was like a a, a, a top candidate, but he yes, sputtered But down. the beginning was also very close to the yeah. end. <laughs> the beginning was very close to the end. Um, and he's up against Tony Evers, who uh, is, I think, uh, cerebral is the best word. To well, describe. I think our <laughs> former colleague, Kevin Robillard, is at the Huffington Post, uh, uh, had, had the, the headline uh, the other day that, that uh, Wisconsin Democrats are trying to go bland to win, which appealed <laughs> to me for obvious reasons. Um, but, uh, Chris, you were talking about the importance of uh, Florida to to Donald Trump and that governor's race to Donald Trump. Obviously, you know, putting an ally there in the nation's biggest swing state. But you look through those Midwestern governor's races too, and this this is where Trump made his map in 2016, right? He flipped Pennsylvania, he flipped Michigan, uh, Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, compared to the Obama results in 2012. Um, Midwest looking a lot dicier for Republicans uh, this year, and that's another area where Trump has sunk a lot of his time and certainly his political operations time into trying to give these guys a boost as he prepares to run again in 2020, right? Yeah. And not only dicier for Republicans, but dicier if you look at the polls for Trump than it was in 2016. I mean, he obviously uh, looked, if you look at those polls when he was running in 2016, 
Um, you know, he was behind until very late in 2016 when he surged ahead. And now you're looking at those states where he seems to have sort of sunk. I mean, Pennsylvania is a good example. The other thing about his recent travel to Wisconsin was there was a pretty big internal debate about whether he should go there. I mean, people people were saying you should cut Walker oh, loose. And, and folks in the White House were very, very strongly urging him to go. Part of it was having Walker as an ally. Another part was they see that as probably one of the strongest state Republican parties in the country. And they said, you can't like let those folks down. You need to sort of uh, carry the flag in the midterms. And so that was a big part of their decision to go uh, in the in the last uh, couple weeks, and um, you know Trump clearly bought into it and was up there on stage with uh, with Scott Walker, who you know was talking about his wife's pre-existing conditions, and they they really sort of personalized the rally as they tend to do. You know, it's really hard to win a third term, but Walker is running competitively here. I, I, the most recent Marquette poll had both Walker and Evers at forty seven percent. I've been surprised with how close this race remains going into election day. Yeah, I mean and and you know all a lot of these races through through the Midwest have been uh pretty close. Uh I mean we've seen Wisconsin's been pretty close. I don't think Walker has really led too many polls, but he's been very close. It's been mostly a margin of error race. Uh we've seen Ohio it's kind of bounced back and forth it seems like. It doesn't seem like the polling has been as consistent there. But that's a really close race, right, with uh, Elizabeth Warren protege Richard Cordray yeah, and uh, that's trying to another... take the governor's mansion for Democrats. In Michigan, you've got uh, Democrat Gretchen Whitmer with a big lead uh, over the Republican there, Bill Schuette. Uh And then, you know, I guess depending on how you define the, the Midwest, I know this might be controversial, but at least, you know, I think part of Pennsylvania I consider to be uh, kind of leaking into the Midwest. And, and, and uh, as you know, as long as we're overlapping here in terms of talking about states that Trump flipped, uh, that's a governor's race that has not been on the radar at all. It has, has not been particularly competitive. Right. And it and and I think that speaks to that. But like, look at there are th- these three races in the Midwest that are competitive, Wisconsin, Iowa and um, and Ohio. And those are all states Trump won in 2016. Um, and look, I, I, I don't think I think one important point to keep in mind here is that Elizabeth Warren has really come out, and I think she's playing to uh, stump for Cordray in the final few days. I think she, I saw pictures of them doing just that on right. Twitter on, the, on our way over here. I'm, she's she's aware, like I think the Trump team is aware, that having a, a friendly governor who owes her in 2020, if she decides to run for president, which seems likely, uh, is a good thing to have. Chris? And we know Trump will be in Cleveland coming up. I, right. I would say if you look at the the map of governor's races and even some with some overlap of the Senate races, I kind of wonder if in the end the place that they will be they will most regret on the Trump side not visiting is Michigan. And I think part of it is just you have these competitive races. Part of it is the overlap for 2020. I just don't see a huge downside in him adding a stop there. And he hasn't so far. And folks have talked about him doing it. And, and, and it's well, funny. The, the downside I see is ego. Right. Like he loves backing winners. He loves touting his record. Um, It's already shaping up to be a tough election. Obviously, most of the stuff he's doing is in the Senate where it's less tough for Republicans. But the trouble with going to Michigan is that John James and Bill Schuette are probably going to lose. 
And and Trump was an early backer of Schuette, actually. The thing to remember there is that uh, one of Trump's earliest gubernatorial endorsements was Bill Schuette. But I, I picked up some grumbling from Republicans about uh, that, that the Trump administration and national Republicans didn't invest enough in John James or Bill Schuette. And they, w- they both would have been more competitive if they had that national support. Daniel Strauss, thanks for coming in to talk governor's races for us. Really curious to see what happens on Tuesday. It's finally here. We're going to see what happens. So almost over. All right. Have a good time on the trail, Daniel. And Chris, thank you so much for coming in to chat as well. Always. Thank you. All right, as promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan here at the end of the show this week. David Gibson of Florida's 8th Congressional District is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, David. Listeners, we found David because he emailed us to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Hey, a couple quick notes before we leave you this week. Uh, We're going to have all sorts of great coverage on election night. Charlie and a lot of the characters you've been listening to on this show for the last couple years are going to be running a live chat at politico.com where you can follow the results with us on election night. We're going to have pages for every House race, every Senate race, every governor's race with the live results as they come in from around the country. And of course, Elena's going to be writing all about what happens in the battle for the House. James Arkin going to be writing about what happens in the Senate, Daniel on the governor's races. We're going to be blowing it out for you on Tuesday night. And then we're also going to be taping a bonus episode of the Nerdcast very, very late that night. That's going to come out the day after election day to kind of talk through what we have seen from those results. So uh, big, big night coming up. Hope you join us for our coverage and enjoy our uh, next edition of the podcast coming to you from the wee hours of that election night. Once again, thank you for tuning in to this episode and all of our episodes this past year. We'll talk to you again next week.